So turn with me, if you would, again to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Uh, I've already mentioned that we had a, a leak in our basement this week. A significant pool of water started to form under my HVAC unit in the unfinished area of our basement. Now, fortunately, before it spread and did untold damage, my wee six-year-old noticed it, and she came and told me about it, and it's Amazing what the words of a little girl can do, preventing something of a disaster on the home front. As we reach the end of the book of James, we find that the book doesn't end as we'd expect. If you've read through any of the New Testament letters, you know that there's a way that you close a letter. And it's normally with some thanksgiving, it's normally with some encouragement, and it's certainly with a benediction. Instead, James goes for, my brothers... If anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It feels a little abrupt. You turn the page to see if you missed something. Perhaps he was called for dinner and while he was writing and decided this is good enough, I'll just hit send. You know, why is it that James ends his letter in this way? Let's work our way through these verses and see why it is indeed the perfect ending and why I told you about my wee girl in the basement. The first thing I want us to see is this. The first thing that these verses really highlight and draw to our attention is the warning not to wonder. The warning not to wonder. We see it there in verse 19. If anyone among you wonders from the truth. Friends, we know how easy it is in life, how easy it is in the Christian life to get off track. You used to have perhaps a measure of spiritual vibrancy, a measure of spiritual energy, and now you just feel spiritually flat. Now, nothing dramatic has happened. There perhaps hasn't been a crisis in faith or a major moment of doubt. There's been no major act of rebellion or any other kind of dramatic moment, but slowly and subtly, little by little, inch by inch, in the mundane, in the routine, in the ordinary, you find that Jesus is no longer as precious as he once was. You found that thoughts of grace and thoughts of the gospel no longer fill you with delight like they once did. You find that somehow you've kind of lost your, your spiritual edge. Robert Murray McShane, who was a great Scottish preacher in the 19th century from my hometown of Edinburgh and had an amazing impact on Scotland, even though he died at just 29 years old, was preaching on this theme and he says, It is a common thing for persons grown up in years to turn old and grey-headed without observing it. Most people are unwilling to be thought old. They do not love to notice the progress of decay. And the marks of old age are allowed to steal upon them unobserved. He then gives this incredible statement. The teeth drop out one by one. One preacher says that's perhaps a comment on Scottish dentistry more than anything else. Um, The hand loses its steadiness. The limbs lose their elasticity. The eye becomes dim. And gray, gray hairs are here and there upon the head. And we are in old age before we are aware. So it is in the decay of the soul in divine things. 
He goes on a little later in that sermon to say, Ah, brothers, we as a congregation are a monument that there is such a thing as spiritual decay. What a bold thing for this young preacher to say. What an honest thing for this young preacher to say. I wonder if we are bold and honest enough to give ourselves the same kind of examination. Where is it in your life that you have wondered? Where is it in your life that you've wondered from the warmth of God? Perhaps it's in just intimacy with Him. There was a time when the first thing you would do in the morning is wake up and grab your Bible and spend some quality time with the Lord. And you enjoyed it so much that you would even set your alarm a little earlier to make sure that you got to it. Now, you're not exactly sure when it happened, but the first thing you reach for is that smartphone. To check your inbox or at the weather or at the headlines. You've wandered away from daily communion with God. Perhaps it's not intimacy. Perhaps it's fellowship with other believers. There was a time when you had committed Christians around you and you prioritized your time with them because you know that those relationships were, were positive for you. And you enjoyed them because you enjoyed the, the intimacy that's formed around discussing those things that mattered most. Uh, now, you still know those people, but you don't really spend as much time with them anymore. Life has got busy and you've not prioritized those relationships. You've wandered away from fellowship. Perhaps it's in the arena of service. There was a time when you gave a lot of time and energy, even precious time on your weekends, to come alongside those who were in need. And you enjoyed using your gifts to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. And then you're not exactly sure when, but life just kind of got busy. Life kind of got full. And slowly but slowly those things dropped off. And you meant to get back into them, but you never quite did. And you've wandered away from serving others. Perhaps it's generosity, perhaps it's evangelism, perhaps it's holiness, perhaps it's a more general thing. Have you wondered in your marriage? Have you wondered in your parenting? Have you wondered in your job? Have you wondered perhaps into the things that, that James has been warning us about throughout this book? Into doubt, into passivity, into prejudice or hypocrisy, into sinful talk or division or pride or selfishness. Uh, what is it? that you have wandered from? Where have you wandered from the warmth of God? This passage is giving us a strict warning because it knows how subtle this can be. We even find that positive things can lead us to, to wander from the warmth of God. I know for, for me personally that my, some of my big struggles, some of my struggles spiritually in terms of my own warmth with God take place in the context of ministry. I get so busy and caught up with all that's going on here, so focused on the task of the day, that slowly but surely God just becomes pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed till the margins. Till I'm busy doing good things, but without a heart that's connected to the Lord. Perhaps you have allowed good things to enable you to wonder as well. One preacher says, this passage is a mirror, a call to weep at the brokenness of our divided hearts. The warning not to wonder. After this warning, we see a, a second thing, which is in some ways an, an antidote to the warning, and that's the call to covenant relationships. We see it there again in verse 19, the call to covenant relationships. If anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back. 
this warning is accompanied with this antidote. James knows how quick we are to get off track. He knows how quick we are to lose our spiritual edge. He knows how quickly and prone we are to get lost. And so he makes sure that we're looking out for each other. It's a call to covenant relationship where we take ownership of each other. In answer to that question, am I my brother's keeper? The Bible answers, yes. We are our brother's keeper. We don't just take responsibility for our own well-being. I don't just take responsibility for my own well-being. We take responsibility for each other's as well. And this is part of what it means to be in a, a covenant community. That because each of us is united to Christ, we're also united to each other. You might not like it, but you don't get to choose your family. <laughs> and sitting in the pews all around are those that you now call family. And I think this family motif is a helpful one. Because as we're called to look out for each other, we're not looking out for each other like a cop sitting at a stop sign. Okay? Kind of just waiting to catch someone doing wrong. And when they do, leaping out and saying, Aha! I knew you would do this. I suspected it all along. That's not the picture that we're given here. It's a family motif. We are looking out for each other as, as parents look out for their children. Go to the pool this summer and see how parents develop a hawk eye as their little ones go into the water. Or think of how a spouse would look out for their loved ones in small ways. Don't think you should wear that tie. To bigger ways that are significant in our lives. Think of how siblings look out for each other. Um, you know, my own kids, they'll, they'll fight, like, fight like cats and dogs. And then if there's a threat to any of them from an external source, they'll defend each other to the hilt. <laughs> That's the way that families look out for each other. A sense of ownership of one another. And notice how this call is given to everyone. See how it says, if anyone wonders from the truth, someone should bring him back. So last week we looked at that section on prayer that was stressed especially to the elders and the special role that they play in the covenant community. But this passage isn't just addressed to the elders. If someone wanders off, the elders should bring him back. No, if someone, if anyone wanders off, someone should bring him back. That loving concern and family relationship in the church is not the reserve of your leadership. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. And we believe that the best discipleship and the best care takes place as the flock looks after itself, as the flock loves itself. Now, just think about this practically, and, and it makes sense to us. When, when your friend wanders off, you're, you're the one who sees that. Now, it's very rare for someone to wander off and, and no one to notice, but you might be the only one who notices. And the sad reality is that by the time situations of, of brokenness or situations of sin reach the elders, it's nearly always, humanly speaking, too late. By the time it gets to that level, things ha- have almost always found themselves beyond repair. For example, in a marriage. One pastor says, by the time it gets to the elders, the eggs are cracked all over the kitchen floor and there's no getting the yolks back in. We're called to this kind of relational ownership of each other, where we can do this for each other. Now, sometimes we get nervous and say, 
you know, should I say something? I don't know what I should say. And I think the point that James is saying to us is, no, look, we're all so quick to wander off. I'm so quick to wander off. I need course corrections every day of my life. And I would rather you say something than that I end up in disaster. So come and say anything. (laughs) Say anything. Hey, how are things really going? You seem caught in this area. Are you really doing okay? Can I be praying for you? Do you need some help? How can I encourage you in this time? Oh, and by the way, here are two or three things I'm struggling with that I need your help on, that I need you to be praying for me on, and that I need you to be holding me accountable for. Have you heard this call to covenant relationship? Are we as a church living into this call of, to, to covenant relationships? Do you have people in your life that you're looking out for? And that you'll speak up if you see them in trouble. Do you have people in your life who are looking out for you? And that you know will speak up if you're heading into trouble. We long to be this place of authentic, vulnerable, tenacious relationships. Where we take ownership of each other. As called to here in our passage. The warning not to wonder. Followed by the call to covenant relationships. Lastly, before closing, let's finally see... The promise of powerful grace. James closes this section on the note that has run throughout his book and throughout his letter. And that is grace. And here before closing his his section and indeed the entire work. He points us toward the promise of powerful grace. If you bring someone back, he says, you save his soul from death. You save his soul from death. The path of sin leads inexorably to death. And anyone who wanders down that path will arrive at that destination. Not just physically, but spiritually. The Bible calls it soul death here. Hell itself. And so we get this sense of of great urgency that James wants us to have. That as we see our brothers and sisters struggling with something, this is no small thing. Rather, we're to have a sense of urgency. As the proverb says, there's a way that appears right to a man, and in the end, it leads where? To death. We're not to think that these are just small matters, insignificant things, just the stuff of life. But we're to come alongside each other as, as true family and look out for each other's welfare because we know the stakes that are at, that are at play here. And we might say... Wait a second. I thought it wasn't possible for, for a Christian to end in spiritual death. I thought it was impossible for a Christian to, to somehow lose their salvation. And the answer to that is, of course, it is impossible for a true Christian to lose their salvation. We call this the perseverance of the saints, a, a doctrine that is taught very clearly in the Scriptures. Philippians 1, verse 6 being one example when Paul says, I am sure of this. Just in case we were worried Paul wasn't sure, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, if Christ has really begun a work in your life, your ability to persevere, your ability to be faithful, your ability to make it to heaven isn't dependent upon your faithfulness to him, but upon his faithfulness to you. And that is good news for a believer in Christ. Of course, we don't believe that you can use, lose your salvation, but we don't also want to shy away from the challenge that's been given to us. And James is saying, I think, what Jesus said 
in Matthew 7, 21. Remember when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. When a Christian wanders into sin, one of two things is happening in their life. Either they've lost their way and the Lord will bring them back because of the perseverance of the saints and his faithfulness toward us. Or it's evidence that they didn't have a true relationship with Christ to begin with. When someone wanders into sin, one of two things is happening. Either they're just losing their way and they'll be brought back, or it's evidence that they don't truly know Jesus. How do you know which one it is? And the answer is you don't. It's impossible to tell from the outside the difference between someone backsliding and the difference between them falling into apostasy. So what do we do? We try to bring them back. We try to bring them back. We do all that we can to bring them back. And if you do, James says, you save their soul from death. You save their soul from death. Now, of course, James isn't saying that you have the messianic power to to save them. Imagine the crushing weight that that would be upon us. As we all have loved ones in our hearts and minds just now who we know have wandered from the faith, imagine the the crushing weight of feeling that we had somehow the power or the responsibility to bring them back. Well, James is saying that not that you have the messianic power, but that there's always grace for the one who wanders. That no one is beyond the reach of that grace. And so he is calling us to participate in the work of God to even redirect eternal destinies by pulling people back into the path of grace that can be theirs in Christ. Calling us to direct people toward Jesus. And if we do, James says, we will save their souls from death. Perhaps this is motivation that you need this morning. Motivation because Someone in your life has begun to wonder and you haven't said anything yet, but you're beginning to realize that the stakes are high and that you need to act in order to save their soul from death. Perhaps it's an encouragement to you this morning. Let these words be an encouragement to you this morning. If there's someone in your life who has wandered far from God, if there's someone in your life who you see wandering now, know that there is grace for that wanderer. And persevere in your attempts to bring them back because you might just save their soul from death. Lastly, James says these, these beautiful words when he says, as you do so, as you seek to bring them back, you cover a multitude of sins. See that there? The very last thing he says in this book. As you seek to bring the wanderer back, you cover a multitude of sins. And these words really grasp at what James is, is, is trying to get at here. Really grasp at what he's trying to encourage us toward. That as we reclaim the one who has, has wandered, as we talk to other people about their sins, we don't do so to expose them, to judge them, to shame them to in any way gloat or or mock them. Instead, we reach out to them with what one pastor calls a blanket of forgiveness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A blanket of forgiveness. Have you personally ever had this experience, I wonder, where you've been called out and greatly loved at the same time 
in the same moment by the same person. It's an incredibly unmasking and yet deeply affirming experience. I think in the Gospels, after Peter has denied Jesus, and Jesus finds him on the beach, and three times he goes to him and he says, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Giving this threefold repetition as Peter had previously denied him. And so Peter feels at one and the same time both the depth of his sin and the, and the guilt and the, the shame of it and the loving restoration of Jesus. Jesus saying, I know what happened here. I know what took place. It all took place just like I said it would. And yet even as I confront you on that sin, I'm loving you and recommissioning you for usefulness in the kingdom. Have you had this experience yourself of being called out and greatly loved at the same time? I feel like it happens in my marriage most days. <laughs> most days. That great summary statement that I've shared many times when Rosie says to me that, James, you're easy to love and you're difficult to live with. <laughs> it's unmasking and it's affirming. We're reaching out to the one who has wandered with this blanket of forgiveness. And these hard words that we need to speak can only be received if they are, uh, come hand in hand with a kind of tenderness, a kind of affection, a kind of, of love. If someone doesn't know that you love them, you have to question whether you've earned the right to confront them on these kinds of issues in the first place. And then when we do reach out, we're to reach out with that same kind of tenderness with which the Lord reached out to us when we were wondering. And if you yourself are wondering this morning, this should be a great encouragement to you. The reality is that in our pews, we have all kinds of secret shame. We have secret struggles with pornography. We have secret struggles that have turned public with affairs and unfaithfulness. We have all manner of financial crime and financial fraud. We have all kinds of anger and bitterness and jealousy. We have all kinds of of brokenness and shame and guilt. Why do we have this? Because we're the church. And if this is you this morning, you should be encouraged by these words. That as the scriptures call you back to Christ, and even as I would call you back to Christ this morning, it's with a blanket of forgiveness. It's not calling you back that we might sit in judgment upon you, but that we might receive you with warmth and we might receive you with love. We think of the father as he welcomes back his prodigal son, running to meet him and then doing what? Throwing a party. That's what we want to do with the wanderer who returns. Not here to judge and condemn, but to offer grace and forgiveness. Reach out to those who are wondering. If you're wondering yourself this morning, come home. And so thus ends the book of James, the warning not to wonder, the call to covenant relationships, and lastly, the promise of powerful grace. Why does he end in this way? The leak in my basement could have turned to disaster were it not for the words of a wee girl. And the leaks in my soul will lead me to disaster unless there's another 
to come alongside. And so James is telling us to take all that we have read and all that we have learned about grace and how to live it out in our lives and spur one another on to obedience. These things might not just be words, but a reality here in this community. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps heavy in our hearts this morning are those we know and love who are far from you. There's not a person here who doesn't have a family member, a friend, someone who is, who is near and dear that, that is lost and in need of grace. And Lord, we know that this, this neediness is not just external to us, but is a reality in our own hearts and souls as well, that we are so prone to wonder. Lord, we recognize that you have rescued us by your grace, that you have embarked on a a great rescue mission to, to, to save our souls. And now, Lord, we're humbled that you would call us to participate in that great work by reclaiming those who are wondering that they might also experience the warmth of your love. Lord, I ask that you would make us a community that does indeed take corporate ownership of each other, that is uh, ready and eager to to love one another well, even in difficult moments, even in, in hard circumstances, even when hard things need to be said, so that together, Lord, we would enjoy the race that you have given us and live out those things that you have taught us in your word and in these recent weeks taught us through the book of James. Thank you, Lord, for for all these things. We pray them in Jesus' mighty and matchless name.